The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 16th, 2022. Earlier in the week, President Biden gave a speech in Atlanta calling on Democrats to eliminate the 60-vote threshold required to end a filibuster in the Senate, specifically on voting rights legislation. Changes to the filibuster vote threshold would block the potential for filibusters on voting rights laws. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from August 2020, in which Margaret Taylor, Adam Gentleson, who served as Deputy Chief of Staff to Senate Democratic Leader Harry Reid during the Obama administration, and Brookings Senior Fellow Molly Reynolds, discuss the history of the filibuster, how it actually works, and what the consequences could be if a Democratic-controlled Senate actually got rid of it. Margaret Taylor, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 14th, 2020. On July 30th, former President Barack Obama, speaking at the funeral of Congressman John Lewis, threw his weight behind ending the Senate filibuster, if necessary, to pursue a voting rights agenda. His comments brought to the forefront a debate that has been simmering for years within the Democratic Party. I talked with Adam Gentleson, who served as Deputy Chief of Staff to Senate Democratic Leader Harry Reid during the Obama administration, and Brookings Senior Fellow Molly Reynolds, to talk about the history of the filibuster, how it actually works, and what the consequences could be if a Democratic-controlled Senate actually got rid of it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 14th. Adam Gentleson and Molly Reynolds on Getting Rid of the Senate Filibuster. So before we launch into the meat of this discussion, I want to ask both of you, what was your reaction on July 30th of this year when former President Barack Obama at the funeral of former Congressman John Lewis essentially threw his weight behind getting rid of the Senate's filibuster if that's what's needed to enact voting rights legislation? I know I had a particular reaction to it, so I want to see what yours was. Well, I was I was on a Zoom call actually, and I, according to my colleagues, my my reaction was uh, uh, wide eyed <laughs> amazement um, when, when the when the alert came through. Um, but I mean, you know, I I, I I was surprised and and elated, I guess, as a as a you know someone who favors reform, because I I thought it was a was a very assertive call. He's correct entirely in, in describing it as a, as a Jim Crow relic. And, and politically, I think that it, it shifted the needle dramatically uh, in terms of 
making it more likely that the Democrats will pursue reform. I think, you know, this is one of those issues, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, where you have a very narrow audience, you know, it's not the American people necessarily. I think the constituency for the status quo of Senate rules is is non-existent among the American people who tend to be more, you know, outcome oriented. Um, the constituency is your small group of, you know, around 50 Democratic senators. And there's nobody who's more influential with that constituency than the than the president, than President Obama. And his framing of it as a civil rights issue, in addition, I think makes it very, very hard for Democratic senators to continue to to support it unless they have a really, really good explanation for why. Molly, how about you? Yeah, so um, I was uh, I was also I was watching the President Obama deliver the eulogy live, and I was um, I was somewhat surprised. But the part that was the part about it that's most interesting to me, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is that. When I think about uh, the filibuster and filibuster reform, I always think about kind of the fusing of procedure and politics um, and policy. And so my biggest question over the past 6, 12, 18 months about the future of the filibuster has always been if Democrats were to find themselves with a majority in 2021, what would be the thing that they might be able to build a coalition around to be willing to get rid of the filibuster for? Um, and I, for a while, I was really uncertain about what that might be. Um, but in the past several months, I've, I've started to see more and more conversation about kind of what legislative priority this potential procedural change might get yoked to. And so to have President Obama come out um, as forcefully as he did and say, if it takes eliminating the filibuster to pass new voting rights legislation, the U.S. Senate should do it. That was a really kind of important step for me in figuring out what might be that policy issue that um, we see as the linkage uh, between procedural reform um, and um, actually getting something done. Great. Okay, so let's step back a bit. Uh, I went back and did some research. The I don't think the Lawfare Podcast has ever done an episode dedicated to the filibuster. The last time Lawfare um, on the on the blog uh, really addressed the issue was in March of 2013 when Kentucky Senator Rand Paul did a 13 hour uh, filibuster of John Brennan's nomination as CIA director, in which he expressed opposition to uh, pervasive secrecy surrounding the drone program and the you know, potential for Americans to be hit by drone strikes as they sit in cafes in the United States. Um, but that's kind of it. And so I want our listeners are obviously very savvy, but I want to just do a little bit of nomenclature uh, at the beginning uh, here. Um, and those and the two words I want to concentrate on are obviously filibuster um, and cloture. I will give you like my sense for these two words, but then I want to hear from from you all who are the uh, the scholars on this topic, um, Adam. I know you are, have recently been researching a book uh, that will come out in January 2021 called "Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy." Molly, you've obviously done a lot of work on this. So, first, the word filibuster. My sort of lay person's understanding is that it's either a Dutch word or a Spanish word meaning pirate. Also in the dictionary, it apparently means irregular military adventurer, especially one who engages in unauthorized military expedition into a foreign country to foment or support a revolution. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's sort of 
what the word is, Adam, in your uh, research on your book, what, what did you sort of come across in terms of the history of the word? Yeah, that's 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 right. And it, it was it, it came into common usage sometime around the 1850s. And this was a time when obstructive tactics were, were becoming more common in the Senate. And, you know, historians, and I'm sure Molly can speak to this, differ about exactly when the first filibuster took place. But basically, you know, people, it, it started to become common enough for a senator or a group of senators to take to the Senate floor and try to delay the passage of a bill, either through long speeches or through filing amendment after amendment or some combination of, of different obstructive tactics. And as that became more common, they, they needed a name for it. And, and it was around this time that the term filibuster came into, into common usage. And yes, you know, the etymology is related to pirates. There was a lot of piracy going on, especially in the Caribbean and, and the Gulf Coast. And there, there were a couple uh, early tries. I unfortunately did not take Latin in high school or college, but uh, there, there was one attempt to, to label it um, cacathus loquendi, which means talking too long. Um, that did not stick. Uh, and eventually they sort of like that. I kind of wish that had stuck. We should bring it back. We could start it here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I guess filibuster was catchier and and it stuck. So, you know, but, but it's interesting if you, you know, from an etymological perspective to think about, you know, the implications, um, a lot of the piracy actually in in the, um, that was going on at the time had a connection to slavery. Um, there were attempts to establish, uh, slave colonies by William Walker, who was one of the most famous pirates of the time. Uh, so there's sort of a, you know, so some some level of of awareness of this as sort of a uh, a tactic that was outside the norm that had some you know related connection to slavery uh and i th- think the catchiness of the term for whatever reason just kind of stuck sometime around mid century 19th century and let's also just quickly talk about the word cloture because um you know if you live in washington you hear this word a lot uh and i'm not sure everyone quite understands what it is uh it's it's obviously close to the word close or end uh, I associate it with coming into being uh, in debate over the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 when the cloture rule ending debate first uh, first sort of happened. Um, and I would just note uh, for our listeners that the Senate did not approve the Treaty of Versailles. But Molly, can you just tell us a little bit more about that word and the sort of rules around surrounding cloture? Yeah. So um, prior to the early 20th century, the Senate did not have a way to cut off debate. Uh, We could talk about um, kind of how that came to be. Um, The story involves Aaron Burr and kind of an auditing of the Senate's rule book in the early um, early 1800s. But basically, in the early 20th century, the, the Senate kind of had come to the point where they felt like they needed a way um, to cut off debate. And so they created the um, the possibility of doing what we call invoking cloture or um, or ending debate. Um, and in, in the current Senate, invoking cloture um, requires getting um, three-fifths of the Senate or 60 votes. And so... Just in terms of the practical way that it works, Adam, I know you obviously worked in the Senate for for many years. I think the popular idea people have of the filibuster is like, you know, as I said before, sort of Rand Paul down on the floor for 13 hours, Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham on the Senate floor, um, or maybe most famously, 
1957, you know, Senator Strom Thurmond, a uh, record long filibuster to block civil rights legislation lasting for 24, over 24 hours. But these days, you don't really see that very often. Instead, it's really just, uh, it's almost like just a voting barrier for getting on to a bill. Um, so Adam, can you just like, again, like just a little basic sort of how does it, how does it really work? Yeah, that's, those, are, those are great examples. And what's interesting about them is that none of those examples you used were technically filibusters because none of them actually delayed action on what the Senate was trying to do. And that's because with the advent of the cloture rule in 1917, which is uh, Senate Rule 22, what happened in the decades after it was introduced is it sort of transformed into a de facto supermajority requirement that every piece of business the Senate conducts has to clear. And this was a hugely consequential development, and it was not the intended purpose of the rule or the impact. And, you know, just to quickly make reference back to the to the framers here, I think, you know, one thing that comes across very clearly in their uh, writing in the Federalist Papers uh, and in the original rules they set for the Senate was that while they did take minority protections very seriously, they also uh, intended for every decision point along the, a bill's path to becoming law to be majority rule. And, you know, Madison is the one who gets referenced the most here. And, you know, there's a lot of cherry picking of, of Madison that goes on because he did take minority protections very seriously and wrote extensively about how important they were. But if you follow his logic, usually in those constructions, the quote about the importance of minority rule comes a few lines before he gets to the point where he says, while these considerations are very important, ultimately the majority has to rule because there's no other functional way to, to run a government. And so what happened in 1917 was uh, shortly after, there was a big backlash because um, in March of 1917, President Wilson wanted to arm American merchant ships uh, that were being harassed in the Atlantic. Um, and this was seen as a, as a backdoor entry into World War I, which was you know, basically accurate by a small group of anti-war senators led by uh, fighting Bob Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin, who was, was a progressive, um, who saw an opportunity to talk Wilson's bill to arm merchant ships to death uh, in the two days between when the Senate could vote on it and the Senate had to adjourn. An adjournment clears the decks and sends everything back to the drawing board. So if they could just basically take up two days of floor time, they could essentially kill this bill. So they did that and it succeeded. And there was a massive backlash, um, huge banner headline in the New York Times. I think the only time the New York Times has had a full page banner headline about Senate rules saying that the, the bill was dead. Wilson took full advantage. He issued a blistering statement decrying the Senate. Public opinion was strongly on his side. He ordered the Senate to come back into session immediately, which they did, and give themselves a way to end debate. And this was when Wilson coined the term as a little group of willful men to describe the obstructionist senators. So what happened was the Senate then convened a committee and they came up with a recommendation to uh, find a way for the Senate, as Molly was saying before, to end debate. And that's where the cloture rule came from. I always think of the cloture rule, I just use the word closure, which at the time, you know, people switch back and forth between closure and cloture. I just find closure to, to be more explanatory um, because that's essentially what the vote is. It's a vote to wrap it up. It's a vote to say we've debated long enough and senators on both sides of the issue, you know, they, they may vote different ways on the bill to pass, 
but they can all agree as reasonable people that it's time to wrap up debate and in a day or two, move to a final vote on the bill. And that's another important point about closure is that in true Senate fashion, it doesn't cut off debate immediately. It doesn't rush a vote to the floor. It basically says, okay, we've got about two to three more days of debate. So everybody have their say, and then we're going to vote to pass or fail this bill. So, you know, at the time that it was invented in 1917, it was explicitly conceived of as a way to cut off debate. And the committee that issued the rule in the Senate called it a move to terminate successful filibustering. So the explicit intent of the rule was to give senators a tool to cut off debate when it went on for too long. And the idea was they set the threshold at a supermajority that's fluctuated a bit over the years. But the basic idea was that, you know, when it became clear to a reasonable person that debate had gone from an attempt to persuade the other side into just a pure attempt at obstruction, that a supermajority of senators, you know, around two thirds, three fifths of the body could come together and say, all right, we've heard enough. This issue has been talked to death. The minority has had its say, and now it's time to hold a vote. What happened in the succeeding decades was that it, Southerners seized on the cloture rule and used it almost exclusively against civil rights, or at least civil rights was the only category of legislation that was consistently blocked by filibusters in the years after the cloture rule was invented, and began to turn it into a de facto supermajority threshold so that every time a civil rights bill came to the floor, it became understood that it would need a supermajority to clear. And no other category of legislation faced a consistent supermajority threshold over this period. And then what happened was was kind of ironic because after so so no so cloture was never invoked on any of the civil rights bills until 1964. Um, there were a bunch of bills that came to the floor during this period to end poll taxes, uh, to combat lynching, to end employment discrimination. All were defeated by the filibuster. In 1957, the Southern senators who were against the bill uh, basically worked with. Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson to to gut it, um, to take out all of its strong provisions so that all that was left was a shell and then allowed it to pass. Um, A similar thing happened in 1960. So there was no actual successful effort to break cloture until 1964 when Lyndon Johnson was president and worked with the Democratic Majority Leader Mike Mansfield and the Republican Minority Leader Everett Dirksen to break the Southern filibuster against the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. You would think that maybe at that point, the filibuster started to fade in importance, but because it lost its connection to civil rights, it began to be used more frequently, and senators found it to be useful on a variety of issues. And so basically, between 1964 and now, what happened was uh, it sort of became cleansed of its segregationist, white supremacist association and became a legislative tool that could be applied to any issue. And over the course of time, and especially under Senator McConnell more recently, its use exploded And that is how we have come to have sort of de facto expectation now in the Senate that any bill that comes to the floor of any importance will have to clear a supermajority threshold. So I'm glad you went through the history on it because I think one of the main sort of points that, you know, is is interesting about the filibuster is that it's really not connected to notions that the founding fathers had. It wasn't something that, that existed then. It's something that has arisen over time and has changed over time. Um, And I do think people who support the filibuster seek to, you know, invoke history to make it seem like a a really integral part of our uh, democracy when, when in fact um, it has much, much more recent roots um, and has changed significantly over time. One thing I want to just 
talk about, I mean, a lot of people say, okay, the filibuster, it's designed to protect minority rights, or that's the purpose of it. A a question for, for both of you, like, does it do that? Should it do that? Is that I mean, I, I take it from both of your comments that wasn't sort of really the original purpose. That is nonetheless how people sort of talk about it now. To Tell me what you, your thoughts on sort of the notion of the filibusters protecting minority rights. Molly, do you want to start? Yeah. So, I, And I'll start by just really hammering home your point um, that Adam also brought up earlier about the degree to which the filibuster was not part of the founder's original vision of the Senate. It really came about um, and was made possible by um, this change to the Senate's rule book that the Senate made in um, 1806 when, the, at the advice of, um, of Aaron Burr, the Senate was kind of trying to clean up its rule book. They had this rule um, known as the previous question motion um, that does allow a simple majority to force a vote on a question. And they weren't using it for that purpose. They were still kind of experimenting with which of the rules in their rule book they were using in different ways. They decided they didn't need this um, this previous question motion, so they took it out. This wasn't like a strategic choice or a political choice. It was a it was a housekeeping choice. They had other tools available that they could use to do the same thing. And then over the course of um, the 19th century, particularly in the run up to and after the Civil War, we um, we see more and more obstruction. Um, and one thing I'll say when you asked before about kind of the definition of filibuster, in our contemporary language, we use it to think of this need to get a supermajority to to end debate, um, but there are other um, there are other kind of tools of obstruction um, that we saw in the 19th century Senate, that we saw in the 20th century Senate, that we see in the 21st century Senate, that kind of fall under this um, this same umbrella. So again, just to kind of emphasize that really this is not for all of the kind of conversation that the founders had about how they wanted the House and the Senate to work and how they wanted um, them to be the same or different. The filibuster wasn't kind of conceived of as part of uh, the original vision of the Senate. Um, In terms of sort of its role in the current Senate um, and the way that it does or does not protect minority, and we can, um, I think it's probably important to distinguish because both of these things will come up between the interest of racial minorities and um, Adam is absolutely right in kind of his recounting of the mid 20th century history of the filibuster and uh, it being used to uh, obstruct civil rights legislation, but also uh, numerical minorities of various kinds. So the, um, the filibuster, I think, certainly prevents legislation um, from passing the Senate that a simple majority of senators um, want want to see passed. Right. And just to be clear, when I say minority rights, I mean the minority in the Senate, like the political yeah. party minority in the yeah. Senate. Yeah. So um, and and it's it's just an important distinction to make because yes. both things um, both things are are right, the features yeah. of the history here. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that 
the Senate is designed to be um, sort of a slower moving, more deliberative body. But as Adam was pointing out before, it was never intended to sort of thwart the the popular will um, in the way that I think the the filibuster um, can in the contemporary Senate. The other thing I'll say, um, and Adam touched on this um, a little bit, is that one of the reasons that the the filibuster I think has stuck around as long as it has has to do with the way that it helps empower individual senators, um, and we can talk about kind of the the interaction of the individual and the collective body here. But the degree to which individual senators see it in their interests to preserve the rights that they have in the presence, the procedural rights they have in the presence of the filibuster has been, I think, both an important part of how it's come to be used as frequently as it is now, and also is going to be a really um, tricky knot to untie as we think about trying to potentially undo the filibuster uh, in the future. Yeah, and I, I just would I would add to that. I mean, I, I think that there's just this you know two century long collective action problem basically when it comes to to reforming it. You know, and and Molly mentioned this that you know it is in each individual senator's interest to maintain it because it gives each individual senator more power and to to achieve reform because of the filibuster you have to usually get a two thirds or three fifths majority to achieve reform. That's that's become less true in recent years. The senators have have you know made more use of of making rules changes through majority votes, um, as my boss did in like Senator Reid in 2013, um, and then Senator McConnell did in 2017. That's something else we could discuss. But but basically, it's you know a minority of senators have always preferred to have the power to defy the majority because they know it'll come in handy for them at some point, and it's been very hard to to get collective action to, to overcome that defiance. And just one other thing I'd say about minority rights, there's, there's a vicious irony to this, which is that the people who invoke the tradition of minority rights tend to be those with the most structural power in the system. And I'm thinking primarily about Southern senators, especially during the Jim Crow period. And you know, you had a system where Southern white supremacist senators were invoking minority rights to continue the oppression of Black Americans throughout the South and continue to preserve the reign of Jim Crow. Uh, so you had senators representing, you know, essentially the, the sort of descendants of the planter class in the South who enjoyed an enormous amount of power, crying minority rights as they maintained the systematic uh, oppression of, of actual minorities in America. So it's, you know, it, it is a it is a tradition that's invoked, and I think inaccurately, but it's a noble sounding principle. And that's why I think it's been hard to uh, reform the filibuster. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Yeah, and I, I think that to kind of build on this a little bit, that when we hear senators when, um, talk now in the recent past about kind of a defense of the filibuster on principles, um, it's not really about kind of a principled view of the institution, how it should work. It's about kind of their political interests. And in the middle of the 20th century for these um, Southern senators, Adam was just mentioning, that was a political interest that involved preventing civil rights legislation from passing. And then as we have a conversation now about kind of keeping the filibuster, eliminating it, and we um, listen to individual senators articulate their feelings on it, uh, many of them will do so in, in terms that talk about kind of the principles and the identity of the institution and the world's greatest deliberative body. Um, but I think we should, we should generally assume that their um, their attitudes and, and their um, positions on the filibuster are really about kind of the underlying policy questions, the underlying political issues. And just, Margaret, just to loop back to, to your original question about the, the framers of minority rights real quickly, which is, I think, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the extent to which they, they took minority rights seriously, but there's a really important distinction here, which is that they, they were primarily focused on letting the minority have their say but not necessarily letting the minority have their way. And I think that's, that is one of the problems of our current debate about this, is that today when minority rights are invoked, it is essentially in defense of allowing the minority to impose its will on the majority. And that is not something the framers envisioned. They wanted to make sure that in any legislative process, the, the senators who opposed what the majority wanted to do would at the very least have the platform of the United States Senate and the Senate floor to make their case, to take their case to the voters, and you know, have a fair go at it. And if they lost, they could have recourse to the political system and try to become the majority of the next election and, and win their case. Um, James Madison made this point with regard to the Alien Sedition Acts at the turn of the 19th century, which he vehemently opposed. And at one point in his correspondence, actually during the nullification crisis, when someone was asking his view on that, he pointed out that he thought the system was working pretty well, where the Alien Sedition Acts passed. That was a bad thing. He opposed it. But they were quickly repealed. Uh, most of the major provisions of them were quickly repealed a few years later. And that was his way of saying, you know, look, the minority should have their say. Sometimes the majority may make a mistake. But the system that he designed provides enough recourse to the other side of the debate to take their case to the voters and have their way. So it's not perfect. Um, sometimes the majority may do the wrong thing, but it's the best available system we have for ensuring that things actually get done. So Adam, you alluded a little bit, picking up on that, you alluded earlier to uh, your time in the Senate. Uh, I think you were there in 2013 when, as you said, uh, then Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid used the quote, the nuclear option, which we should probably explain what that is, to essentially get rid of the, the filibuster for all nominees except for Supreme Court justices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that time? 
what were the discussions that went on? Um, I was also working on the Hill at the time, so I remember it like pretty vividly and how strongly senators, uh, I saw senators sort of actually sort of argue and snipe at each other about that issue. Um, and I had never seen that uh, on, on the committee I worked on, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so it really was so controversial at the time um, and also has since been sort of criticized as the route through which uh, Senate Republicans then sort of eviscerated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees to, um, and then now we have Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. So t- talk to me about that time and sort of what what that felt like at the time. Sure, I'd be happy to do it. And yes, you know, I was I was there, and so it was 2013 was was the year that it all sort of came to a head. And just to put it in context, this was the first year after President Obama had been re-elected, Democrats in Congress had done well in the 2012 election, Senate Democrats had picked up two seats. Um, and there was a feeling basically, you know, if, if you look sort of step back from it, you had the 2008 elections where President Obama uh, came in, won a big victory, strong majority, Senate Republicans were relegated to just 40 seats in the Senate. And so you know, Democrats sensed a strong public mandate for their legislative program. And in his first term, President Obama experienced levels of obstruction that had never been seen before, primarily at the hands of Senator Mitch McConnell, who was at the time the minority leader in the Senate. And so, you know, in the 2010 midterms, you had the rise of the Tea Party, a big victory for Republicans, and they seemingly had a mandate for their side. But then Democrats won again in 2012. And there was this sense at the time that uh, as President Obama himself said that the fever was going to break, that people were going to return to legislating, the Republican Party issued its autopsy report after the 2012 election saying that Republicans need to take a, you know, a more uh, moderate tone and turn away from the Tea Party, essentially, was the subtext of the report, and start legislating again. But then things quickly went off the rails. And, uh, you know, you had a brief period in early 2013 where things seemed to be getting done. The Senate uh, passed an immigration bill, um, but that was quickly put on ice in the House you also had all this happening against the backdrop of the Newtown massacre in December of 2012, which was followed by massive gridlock. And the Senate was unable to even pass a bill to implement universal background checks, which was a policy that was supported by between 80 and 90% of the American people at the time. The policy itself got 55 senators in support of it, uh, but failed on a filibuster. So, you know, all this was happening, and, and then Republicans' obstruction of President Obama's nominees continued to be at a historically high level. I mean, my impression at the time, and maybe this isn't quite the, the full context, my impression was that it was really obstruction around judges. Like, Senate Republicans were were really just kind of not moving on, you know, not sort of agreeing to judges at all, and that was the trigger. Is was that is that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, that that was definitely the trigger. I, I think that, you know, if, if there had been any conceivable situation where Democrats could have gotten the votes to go nuclear, to lower the threshold for passage on legislation, as well as nominations, that we might have attempted to do that. But it was at the time seen so out, far outside the bounds of possibility that, that we really just focused on nominations. But, but, there, but, I, but I mentioned the legislation because it's important for the context that there was just this sense at the time that responsible governing simply wasn't possible as long as the minority maintained the ability to block anything it wanted uh, in terms of what the majority wanted to do. 
So yeah, the, the thing that brought it to a head were uh, judicial nominations and some executive branch nominations like Richard Cordray's nomination to head the CFPB and uh, Mel Watts' nomination and a number of others. And so basically, over the course of the year, there were a couple sort of false starts where we came close to, to pulling the trigger on the nuclear option, and then it eventually culminated in, in November 2013 when Senator Reid did deploy it. And for, for definitional terms, what the nuclear option means is changing the Senate rules by a majority vote. And the reason that's significant is that you know, to do just about anything in the Senate over the last few decades, you have to get a supermajority. Technically, to change the rules since the advent of the cloture rule and some subsequent alterations to it, you also had to get a supermajority. But the thing is, the Senate operates on a combination of written rules, norms, and precedents. And when it became clear that no attempt to change the rules could ever achieve a supermajority because of the collective action problem we were talking about before, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, senators started to evolve away to make changes to the Senate's practices by holding a majority vote to essentially overturn the ruling of the chair. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but the presiding officer of the Senate, also known as the chair, is sort of a combination of a judge and a reference librarian in that they can issue rulings, but they have to be asked to do so. It used to be the case that they were more interventionist and could jump in at the end of debate or you know, call to order a senator's out of order, but that, that has long since passed. Now the way it works is a senator can ask the presiding officer for a ruling on a, on a question of Senate procedure. And just to be clear for our listeners, the presiding officer is, is, is some other senator who sort of get, has an assigned time where, where he or she sits in the chair and is the presiding officer. That's right. Officer. It's, it's usually the president pro tempore, who's the longest serving senator of the majority. It could also be the vice president, um, who is technically the president of the Senate, um, and sometimes is in sort of, you know, on big days, but it could also be any rank and file senator. But in a situation where something like the nuclear option was about to go down, you would make sure it was, you know, someone of, who knew what they were doing. Um, but you ask them for a ruling, and they, what they basically do is they, if, if you ask the presiding officer for a ruling, they basically read back to you what the Senate rules say about a given situation. And then once they've sort of stated the ruling, the Senate can take a vote by a majority vote to say that they disagree with that ruling and to overturn it. And that's essentially the process that has evolved and become known as the nuclear option. So basically the way it went down in 2013 was Senator Reid called up one of the nominations that was being blocked by Republicans. You know, it had majority support, but it couldn't pass because it didn't have supermajority support. He asked the presiding officer for a ruling on how many votes it took to invoke cloture and end debate on this nominee. The presiding officer, who was Patrick Leahy at the time, who was the president pro tempore, said that Senate rules state that it takes 60 votes to end debate on this nomination. And then Senator Reid called a vote to overturn that rule and establish a new precedent. And that vote showed that a majority of the Senate disagreed with the idea that it took 60 votes to end cloture. And that became the new precedent. And so technically, it didn't change the rules on the books but it superseded it with a new precedent that said it now only takes a majority to end debate on nominations. And one important exception was that we did not include Supreme Court nominations in that change. The change applied to all nominations for executive branch and judicial spots except Supreme Court nominees. And essentially the reason for that was that we just didn't have the votes. There were a number of Democrats who were uncomfortable going that far. 
out of concern that primary issue driving it was was uh, the question of choice, and they opposed going that far out of uh, fear that anti-choice justices would be uh, appointed. So I think that actually brings us nicely kind of into the the, the question that's sort of before folks now. Obviously, there has been some erosion of the filibuster in 2013 with Senator Reid, 2017 with Senator McConnell. There was other mechanisms, budget reconciliation in the Senate for even getting you know certain types of legislation passed, including the Affordable Care Act, I would note, uh, which passed uh, on a on a majority vote. Parts of the ACA. So there. Uh, okay. So so yes, Margaret. There are um, there are important ways that the Senate has to get around the filibuster. But uh, and reconciliation is um, is one of them that actually there's if we're if we're in the business of busting myths about the filibuster, the idea that reconciliation was this thing that came out of nowhere in 2010 to pass the ACA is also a myth. There's, uh, you know, uh, almost 30 years of usage of the tool before then as well. And there are other tools too. I mean, expedited procedures, you know, which are a lower vote threshold for consideration of certain arms sales, et cetera. There's all there's a lot of different sort of tools that I guess I kind of view as like an erosion of the sixty vote threshold. Um, so my question for you guys: like, Do you see? Is it really a big deal to get rid of it for for all legislation in light of all this sort of erosion around it? Like, how how big of a deal is it if, for example, if there is a Biden presidency? Uh, Senate controlled by Democrats, like how big of a deal would it be to uh, get rid of the filibuster for for everything, for, you know, for including legislation? So I think it would be a, a really big deal, um, in part because of the kind of list of things that we can articulate that, uh, again, in, in this hypothetical where um, Democrats have unified party control, the list of things that they would not be able to do um, in the presence of the filibuster that they could possibly do if the filibuster were eliminated. The question of what of kind of exactly what those pieces of legislation that uh, 50 Democratic senators would would agree on is a is a different question. Kind of how much agreement within the party is there um, about some of these um, of these issues, and exactly what form would that take? Um, but I do think that there's um, there's a, a pretty substantial list of things that Democrats would not be able to get done in 2021 um, in the presence of the filibuster that they could get done in 2021 without the presence of the filibuster. And for me, the real big question is kind of which of those potential agenda items is the one that you could get a coalition not just to pass uh, in if the if it only took um, a simple majority but to really be willing to pull the nuclear trigger to get done and to go back to my comments at the top that's part of why um, President Obama's comments at John Lewis's funeral funeral were so striking to me because that was an ex- that was a, an example of someone who's really influential in the party putting forth and putting down a marker and saying this is the thing that senators should um, unite around to that's um, important enough to use the the nuclear option for yeah and I and I think you know there, there's a structural imbalance here because I, I completely agree with Molly that it would be a huge deal it'd be one of the most significant reforms to the Senate potentially the most significant reform. Um, definitely since the advent of, of Rule Twenty Two in nineteen seventeen, and, and arguably ever, but but it would it is it is something that would empower the liberal side of the spectrum more than the 
conservative side because the filibuster historically and even today tends to block progressive liberal legislation more than it does conservative legislation. Part of this is just the imbalance in the nature of the parties. The, the conservatives are the party in William F. Buckley's phrase that stands athwart history yelling stop and much of their agenda is aimed at preserving the status quo and, and things like tax legislation can be done through reconciliation and reconciliation can be expanded to include a lot of things if, if you want to get creative about it. I mean, uh, animal opening the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge to, to drilling got done uh, in re- through reconciliation as part of the tax cut package in 2017 to get Senator Murkowski's vote. So, you know, th- there's a lot you can throw into that pile if your agenda is primarily focused on things like tax cuts uh, and a hodgepodge of other issues. Democrats have a much broader agenda and most of the things they want to do can't be achieved through reconciliation. Um, you could not, even if you got really creative, you couldn't stretch reconciliation rules uh, to make it apply to gun control or to make it apply to civil rights and voting rights issues. Um, those sorts of things would be blocked by the filibuster period. Um, so I think it would be a very big deal. And I think, I think it's, it, it, you know, it's something that, that would advantage the liberal side of the spectrum more, more than conservatives. And that's, that's why you hear more of the calls for reform coming from the liberal side. So I want to just press on that a little bit um, with you, Adam, because you you alluded earlier to uh, concerns about um, the anti-choice, which is an abortion rights issue, being a barrier to Democrats supporting getting rid of the filibuster. And so just to to spin it out a little bit for our listeners, I think you know some would say that actually historically Republicans have held the majority in the Senate for more years than than Democrats. And so, you know, there is an argument that while it may not be utterly clear right now what a broad Republican agenda might be, a future such legislative agenda could include, for example, anti-choice, anti-abortion types of, of laws. And so, you know, you say that you think getting rid of it empowers the the liberal side of the spectrum. I mean, isn't there a case to be made that actually it could very well empower the conservative uh, side of the spectrum, given given historic sort of Republican control of the Senate. And in addition, will that still be a barrier going forward? Because it, it doesn't seem to me that that concern has, has gone away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is, this comes up a lot and, I, and something I've personally, you know, struggled with. But I, I think that there's, you know, essentially what it comes down to is that liberals are fighting a losing war of attrition here in uh, maintaining the filibuster because it it does occasionally come in handy and blocking conservative legislation. But over the course of time, and I'm not talking about decades, I'm talking about short, medium, and long-term, on balance, it is far more damaging to progressive priorities than it is to conservative priorities. And you know, you raise the issue of Senate control, and that that is a structural disadvantage to progressives. But that's a great example because, you know, one of the you know only potential solutions to remedying that disadvantage is extending Senate representation to places that do not currently have it but are governed by U.S. laws, like the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. And there's there's a very powerful ethical and moral case for DC statehood and for, for Puerto Rico statehood. You know, they are the citizens who live there are governed by US laws and they don't get have any say in, in shaping them. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. 
but you know the Senate stuck at a hundred members just by coincidence. You know it's it's always grown uh, throughout the course of the country, and adding seats to those places is something that would never happen with the filibuster. And then I would also point to voting rights. You know efforts to remedy the systematic suppression of uh, the votes of people of color, of young people, and other constituencies that, that tend to vote Democratic is something that cannot be done as long as the filibuster exists. Uh, that's, a, that's a prediction, I think, but I think it's one I feel pretty comfortable making, that Republicans will block any legislation to implement things like automatic voter registration uh, or other measures to try to increase uh, turnout among those constituencies and extend the vote and make sure that everybody in America has equal access to the ballot. So, you know, it is... It is sometimes tempting to maintain it because you can. It's very easy to envision the bad things the other side will do if they had the power to pass things in a majority vote. But it's ultimately self-defeating because, on the long haul, it both blocks liberals from passing important legislation to address urgent, pressing issues like climate change, gun control, income inequality, immigration, and it also stops them from addressing the structural imbalances that have led to uh, greater Republican control over the Senate and other issues. Uh, so there's, you know, it, it, it is tempting in the immediate, but it is ultimately a losing war of attrition for liberals to continue uh, supporting the filibuster. I think another question that um, sort of had to ask ourselves about some of these policy issues that I think folks on the left worry might be in, in danger in a filibusterless world is what would it actually look like if the Senate tried to consider some of those things? So I think that sometimes in the current uh, Senate, the filibuster becomes cover for um, majorities that don't actually have support for something that to be able to blame the filibuster for not for not doing things. And so I think that, again, the, the real question for me is to get from kind of where we are now to where we might be in the future the big question mark is kind of what's what is the thing um, that a, a Senate majority kind of finally feels so fed up about that they're willing willing to go nuclear, and that's why I think Adam's discussion earlier of the overall context surrounding the initial use of the nuclear option in 2013 is so useful because it really demonstrates the degree to which kind of what brought Democrats to that point was this overall feeling of frustration, not just about judges, but also about the overall legislative environment. Republicans controlled the House, so there was it was really hard to get things done. And so this this notion that you can only go so long before the dam breaks. Okay, last question. Predictions. If Joe Biden wins the presidency and Democrats win control of the Senate in the November elections, Will the filibuster be gone in 2021? Yes. <laughs> I like the brevity of that answer, Adam. <laughs> I'm not as confident as Adam, but I will say I think it's much more likely now than I did, say, six months ago. Some of that has to do with the kind of opening up a little bit more of the Senate map between, say, January and now, and the idea that, you know, if you have to get to 50, uh, it's easier to get to 50 Democrats in support. If you have, say, 53 Democrats to pick from than if you only have 50. <laughs> and then I also think that as we've started to see more concrete sort of policy proposals that might be the instigator, whether it's Obama's comments on voting rights, whether 
its additional legislation to respond to the pandemic, given kind of where we are now as we're recording this in the state of those negotiations. I'm not as confident as Adam, but I um, I think it's more likely than if you had asked me six months ago. Yeah, and I, I, and I you know, fundamentally, it's a political question. And it, it is in many ways up to Republicans to determine the fate of the filibuster, because if they chose to work with Democrats and give them the votes they needed to pass the things that Molly listed, then I think the filibuster would would not go away. But I, the reason I, I come down hard on yes is that I, I just have a very jaundiced view of the politics here. And I think that the future of Republicans, there'll, there'll probably be calls for moderation, just like there were after 2012. Uh, there may even be a few voices inside the Senate who call for it. But ultimately, in a political era defined by polarization and negative partisanship, they're going to be drawn towards further obstruction and their interests in doing well in the 2022 midterms will be the same interests that drove them to obstruct President Obama in the first two years of his term. They they want to see the majority fail. They will want to see President Biden fail because that will benefit them politically. It's not. I'm not saying this as an ethical or moral question. I'm just stating this as a rational question of politics. And I think that you know they they could they could decide to resist those forces, but it's more likely that that they'll give in to them and all of the things that. Molly listed will, will run up against Republican filibusters. And I just want to make one one additional point, which is that I think, you know, sometimes people talk about the filibusters as, as sort of a and ending the filibuster is a call from the far left, you know, to pass massive progressive priorities like the Green New Deal or something like that. And I think what will become clear over the course of 2021 is that ending the filibuster isn't necessary for passing, you know, massive progressive policies. It's going to be necessary just for passing the bare minimum to responsibly respond and govern to the challenges that we face from the pandemic to the economic collapse, to global warming, to income inequality and civil rights and a range of other issues. It, it will be what, what's necessary just to get 51 votes for moderate center-left policies, not something that we need to do to pass things like the Green New Deal. Yeah, and I think that's part of um, why the, having this conversation about kind of what is the legislation that's going to get bottled up to the point where it frustrates folks so much that they might be willing um, to do uh, to to go nuclear, if you will. And I think to to Adam's point about kind of potential coming Republican obstruction, I actually think we are seeing some telegraphing of that already from some Republican senators who are formulating the same kinds of arguments about, say, the debt and deficits against uh, COVID relief that harken back to, uh, you know, 2010. And that, that you can kind of, it's a, I think it's a preview of the kind of debate that's likely to happen in, in early 2021. Adam Gentleman, and Molly Reynolds, thank you so much for coming on the Lawfare podcast. It was really, really a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast, give us a five-star review wherever you found us, and visit thelawfarestore.com to peruse our merch. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our audio engineer was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>